you get to see behind the curtain here, Ben. Like yeah, the, fascinating. This is how the sausage is made. The podcast. This is how, this is how the wizard is Ozd. <laughs> Who's are you? The wizard was in this. In this. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm just a small guy with. Um, how was he? I don't even have an impressive voice or persona to to convey um, grandeur, which doesn't you know conform to the reality. That's it's not just, true, Alex. You've got a lot of grandeur. Uh, d- delusions thereof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have the grand you have the donations <laughs> okay uh welcome everyone uh welcome specifically patrons uh, to this episode in which we discuss, uh, well, I guess the relevance of psychoanalysis today. Um, we're here with uh, Benjamin Fong, who recorded a free episode with us, and this is a patron's episode. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Damage Magazine's project, which we already referred to. Um, what is analytics, social psychology, and what happened to the marriage of Marx and Freud? Um, is it still relevant? Uh, or is the attempt to bring in psychoanalysis just a way of explaining why people aren't revolutionary, you know, because they're watching TV instead, um, as the, the crude criticism of it has it. Um, so welcome again, Ben. And uh, Phil and George are here, of course. Hey, what's up? Of course. Always here. Always, always here. Um, so actually, let, let's get started, actually, because in the, the main episode, Ben, you referenced analytic social psychology, and it might be worth saying where that comes from and what that specifically means and how you would distinguish that from maybe the social psychology that people might be familiar with um, and so on. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, at at Damage, we sort of just use it as a shorthand for um, some, uh, you know, field of interest that blends uh, psychological and sociological concerns. But the phrase does uh, come from an essay by Eric Frum called The Method and Function of Analytic Social Psychology. Uh, Frum was an early uh, member of the Frankfurt School. He was kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of expelled from the inner circle by the late 30s for what um, what they thought of as his like revisionist turn, his turn away from Freud. Um, but this was an essay that was written in, um, in the early 30s, I want to say, 1931 maybe. And um, in it from, uh, you know, just lays out some key ways in which psychoanalysis um, can be understood as a social psychology rather than an individual psychology. Or, I mean, the way that Fromm puts it is that um, psychoanalysis destroys the distinction between individual and social psychology. And, um, and I think he offers just like a good understanding of psychoanalysis itself, like very much in line with uh, what Freud offered. And um, I think the key thing there is that he thinks of psychoanalysis as the only properly historically materialist uh, psychology, um, by which he means that the theory, it's not, I mean, the theory of psychoanalysis is not based in, um, in you know, moral values or speculation or even um, immediate like observation of, of people as like so much academic psychology is today, um, but it's rather based in people's concrete life history, right? It's based in like, like your, your, the developmental process and how um, you know we've all, in you know various ways, for good and for ill, uh, adapted ourselves to the demands of social reality. Um, and so maybe you know you want to take issue with uh, some of Freud's ideas. Uh, certainly we do, but I think the method is good. You know, seeing uh, people's uh, psyches as products of uh, an adaptation to um, to social imperatives. You know, given the kinds of bodies that human beings have, I think it's a pretty good starting point for uh, an understanding of the human psyche. Um, I mean, maybe one other thing that that's uh, you know helpful in understanding analytic social psychology, as Frum describes it, uh, is that he thinks that psychoanalysis is essentially focused on the family. He thinks that a bit is uh, not exactly like a sociology of the family, but he thinks that that the the, the primary unit uh, in psychoanalytic theory is the family. And it's the family as a mediating institution between society and the individual. Um, Mm. And so it's sort of about uh, how economic imperatives 
are filtered to individuals through through the family through parental imperatives right mm. and um as like an illustration of this i, I mean I, I don't think that she thinks of her own work as analytic social psychology but, uh, there's a book by um, Jennifer Silva called Coming Up Short, which is really great. Um, and it's sort of about, uh, yeah. you know, the ways in which like um, unstable family lives and, you know, dim economic prospects of like working class millennials in America um, leads them to think about the markers of adulthood in different ways than their parents did. Right. So like the mm-hmm. traditional markers of adulthood are not available. And so instead they're kind of like thrown back on their own psychology and think about their own accomplishments in terms of like overcoming demons and whatnot. She calls this like the mood economy. And I think, I mean, again, uh, she certainly wouldn't understand this as like a work of analytic social psychology, but I think it's, that's sort of how I think of the tradition of analytic social psychology. Uh, it's a, it's a good illustration of it. And it's a great book. Yeah. Great book. Yeah, um, yeah. Who we, we had on the, on the podcast um, maybe a year or two ago, um, and uh, will appear in the future. Um, I think one thing about trying to understand the difference, I guess, between the social psychology as it's normally understood and, and psychoanalysis. Um, I, I remember that Christopher Lash, uh, someone who incidentally has been criticized from the left for having a moralistic critique. Um, I don't know if that's correct or if I agree with that, but anyway, that people do make that criticism. But in the culture of narcissism, uh, something we discussed in a recent reading club, um, and we discussed this point specifically, which is that he argues against, um, I guess, a social psychology because in, in the sense that, you know, we're not dealing with a collective psyche, that rather the psychoanalysis is at its best when it's rooted in, uh, I guess, a clinical psychoanalysis of the individual subject, which is then related to, to society, uh, asking what kind of society creates this, this kind of subjectivity. Um, is that, I guess, is that the way that you, would, you would see it as well? Yeah, I mean, this was essentially the debate. Uh, I mean, what was at stake in Frum's expulsion from the Frankfurt School? Um, that the revisionist turn was a turn away from Freud insofar as Frum wanted to see us as directly social beings, right? That like all of uh, mm-hmm. the many facets of human psychology can be chalked up directly to social imperatives. And uh, Adorno wrote a response to from, uh, I think it's, um, it was a lecture in the 50s called The Revisionist Psychoanalyst. And he says basically just that like, we, we learn much more about society if you delve into the depths of the individual unconscious, then you do if you just sort of casually chalk up uh, individual behaviors to social compulsions. And I think that's essentially right, um, that the social element in psychoanalysis, it doesn't come by just looking at social imperatives and saying, ah, here, direct link between this and Mm. individual compulsions. Um, It's much more interesting and it's much more revelatory of the nature of social imperatives if you take seriously the psychological element, if you if you work through the structures of repression on their own, which are um, absorbed at an individual familial level, um, that you can see the compulsions of society much clearer if you go through individual psychology rather than just to make that direct jump to sociological explanation. You made so you made a case um, for and it really well, in fact, um, I think about the um, both just now with um, the point about um, how to think about and discover kind of social compulsion within the individual and how they relate to it. So about the role about what psycho what psychoanalysis can teach us, um, and I wanted to push it or just to probe a bit for so um, uh, with uh, something that you say in your book about how, and so this is a quote from your book, um, the task is not to discover something buried, but to create reality. Um, I wondered if you could, how, what do you mean by that? And how does it relate to this, um, to these points that you've just been making about the connection between psychoanalysis and freedom and the relationship between the individual and social compulsion? Yeah, um, I mean, it's uh, it, it feels, I mean, the book was actually um, published, I think the day after Trump was inaugurated, which feels like uh, a few lifetimes ago. Um, I'm trying to place where that's from. I mean, I think it might be from the introduction. And um, yeah, I mean, there I'm trying to, uh, to work against what is a, um, 
I mean, it's, I mean, it's really sort of a classic debate uh, about psychoanalysis itself, just how real we should understand uh, primary fantasies to be. Um, you know, when Freud uncovers, uh, you know, repressed memories of his patients, what's going on there, right? Did like, um, did the Wolfman really see his like uh, parents having sex at like the age of three months or whatever it was? Um, probably not right? <laughs> Probably didn't happen. Uh, if it did, who knows like what was retained of that memory or how it was processed. But what I was trying to argue there is that what the, what the articulation of the fantasy did in the course of the therapeutic process was open up something in the Wolfman's mind about uh, himself, right? And so despite the fact that the fantasy itself might have not been literally true, um, it was part of a therapeutic process wherein creative interpretations of compulsions and fantasies was, was being articulated. And so, I mean, it was part of like an argument about how psychoanalysis ought to be seen, not as just, you know, digging out like the nuggets in everyone's head, but as like a creative process between two individuals. Um, and, but, you know, that, that being said, like, I do think that, um, you know, something is, I mean, just sort of like trying to describe uh, the phenomenon of going through psychoanalysis, I do feel like people come out the other side or, well, I mean, okay. So for the most part, people in psychoanalysis think nothing happens. I think that's the majority of psychoanalytic experiences. Um, but for the people who think that psychoanalysis works, and I'm always interested to talk to these people because again, for most people, uh, they think that they're just going to go. Um, I think that for the people who thinks that it works, that they, that, that they do feel like something has been lifted, that something has been lifted, not necessarily that they're healthier or that they are you know, better adapted to society, but that they were determined in some way and now they're a bit freer from that, that determination, right? And I think in the creative process of psychoanalysis, you can sort of gain new perspectives on you know, your parents, your childhood, um, your, you know, maybe like traumatic instances uh, yeah. and come to be freer than you were previously. I mean, Freud, yeah. Freud has this well-known um, line from one of his early case histories, which is that the goal of psychoanalysis is to transform hysterical misery into common unhappiness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could take that bleakly, That's but uh, at the end of it, you are, you might not be happier, but you're a bit freer and i think that that's the kind of liberatory element in psychoanalysis yeah it's a great line and um in a way i think it's kind of the um it's um it's modest kind of it's apparent modesty disguises um just what a kind of tremendous proposition it is in some ways yeah totally i mean it's um it's a huge undertaking um and i i think that that's actually what's unique about psychoanalysis amongst the different psychological disciplines. Like it's not promising, you know, that you can uh, go back to work happier or that, you know, you don't fall into spirals of depression. Like that's, that's not what it's promising. It's promising that you are free from uh, some kind of determination and compulsion that hadn't been worked through and that you can, you know, be, be free of those compulsions, not in a total sense, but be a little bit freer. And I think that's a huge undertaking, like you say, and um, uh, something that should be retained from psychoanalysis. Yeah, such a great way to put it in terms of um, in terms of freedom, or that's the possibility. That's what you're striving um, towards, in some sense. But in, I guess with reference to analysis of politics or the psychoanalytic analysis of politics, um, what do you think that psychoanalysis can do to analyze no politics? Um, because I think this is probably what we would have said was one of the characteristics of the um, end of history period that we're we're kind of maybe stumbling out of at the moment. Um, can yeah, can psychoanalysis contribute to an analysis of um, politics in this context? And actually, I just wanted to add something to that as well. I mean, because I think the temptation is that maybe psychoanalysis seems more appropriate to a period in which there is no politics. Um, than to a period where there is politics. Because when there's politics, you need political analysis. And when there's no politics, you need maybe a critical sociology or, or psychoanalysis. So to explain the absence, the politics yeah. should be there. Why isn't yeah. it there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 this isn't a direct answer to the question, but I'll say at first that um, 
I think that part of the um, historical defeat of psychoanalysis has to do with the fact that it's so um, been so thoroughly like absorbed by culture in such a way that, you know, like oftentimes like psychoanalytic perspectives and views are utilized in such a way that no one thinks about them as psychoanalytic. But if you trace it back to its its origins, um, you know, it's, it's rooted in Freud or one of his followers. So, I mean, even the thing that uh, I'm forgetting about I'm forgetting if we talked about it in this session or the previous one, but just the idea that, um, you know, uh, erratic, uh, the, the erratic behavior of authorities leads to paranoid character structures. That's a essentially psychoanalytic idea, right? But we've just so thoroughly absorbed it, uh, it's become second nature. And ideas about like the unconscious, about repression, about neurosis, yeah. about anality, um, you know, it's all kind of, kind of, uh, second nature and so in a way we're, yeah, we're kind of always doing it um it's like, it's like that I mean, point that Keynes made about uh, people being in hawk to you know people who think that they they are you know objective rational and don't have any ideology are just in hawk to some dead philosopher and i think that applies especially to to freud yeah totally um i mean on the question of like no politics or like post-politics i think uh the sort of um uh, I, I mean, I assume you mean like sort of like post-political malaise rather than like the anti-political uh, struggles of, of late. And um, yeah, I mean, um, I don't think psychoanalysis is, is, is like particularly helpful there. I do think, I do think the, you know, the sort of like vulgar theory of the culture industry is, is quite helpful there. Um, I mean, if you think about the 90s, uh, I don't think about, I mean, I think about Clinton and NAFTA, of course, but, you know, you think about pop music and grunge and stuff. Uh, and so, you know, the, the culture industry did, I think, come to fill uh, the void in the decline of associational, um, you know, life in America in a way. And so if there's something that's sort of, um, you know, interesting and relevant there outside of like traditional Marxist explanations, it's uh, the power, the continuing power of uh, the American culture industry. Post, post politics is, is Kurt Cobain's fault. Or is that too good? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I mean, it filled the void, you know, I, I mean, when um, the neoliberal assault began and uh, people retreated from uh, politics for a variety of reasons. And again, like the sort of, um, uh, the sort of mediating institutions of American life went into decline. The culture industry sort of stepped in to offer what was, what was lacking. Um, and I think it still very uh, efficiently serves that function today. So I, maybe looking historically, you know, we can, obviously therapy has become, you know, therapy in, in general terms has become ever more, um, present in our lives, whether directly as, as kind of undergoing some sort of clinical therapy or therapy, you know, what's called therapy culture in general. Um, and and I actually just personally, my own criticism and skepticism towards therapy culture made me deeply skeptical to psychoanalysis um, and only, you know, relatively belatedly that I come to realize that psychoanalysis was the best weapon in some ways against therapy culture or, or the at least provided the, the materials for a really thoroughgoing critique of it, which actually, um, without psychoanalysis, you, you were left critiquing it on, on a kind of relatively shallow basis of just saying, well, no, we should be more um, robust individuals or something um, and not be, you know, so indulgent in our own vulnerability or so narcissistic or something like that. Um, so, and I, what, I, I referenced that just because we, I think, forget maybe how influential and how popular psychoanalysis was throughout the mid part of, of the 20th century, something that's been forgotten. Um, and I say all that because, um, at least from a, a Marxist perspective, and maybe many of our listeners think of themselves as Marxist, or at least have inclined to, to maybe historical materialist ideas of, um, of society, um, was that there was an attempt to, to bring together Marx and Freud. And um, I think I find that attempt fascinating. And I also find, uh, the reasons for why it no longer uh, no longer holds, why that marriage maybe fell apart, um, also fascinating and intriguing um, and perplexing. Um, so, I think maybe one of the main reasons that it's, those two are brought together, or people say that they should be brought together, is because it recognizes the irrational in human affairs in a way that Marx perhaps didn't. Um, but maybe a better way to put it, and this is something that I'm actually taking from from the introduction of your book, Death and Mastery. 
Um, I have read the whole thing, um, but I'm just citing the introduction. Just want to make that clear. Um, <laughs> that uh, that uh, what there is in it is that it's a, there, that in Freud, I guess, is that there's a recognition of part of our nature that actually works against our own mastery, um, and and thus willingly accepts an inversion. The, the inversion here being um, that we willingly embrace those forces and behavior that destroy our own drive to mastery. And mastery there, I think, is something that you and many others have identified as crucial to, to Marx. I mean, it's an attempt for, for society, for humanity collectively to take uh, charge of its own future. Um, and yet we do things which militate against that and sometimes in, enjoy the way in which we, we sabotage ourselves. Um, so I, would you agree with that? I guess the description of, of what, uh, I mean, I, I suppose in part you disagree with it because I've taken it from your book, but um, maybe you could elaborate on it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, first, just on the um, the first point that you touched on about um, you know the culture of therapy and how oftentimes the psychoanalytic perspective is the best means from which to criticize it. Um, I'll just like plug a recent piece in Damage by Brianna Lass called "Therapy Without Therapist," uh, which is a critique of the you know the current uh, trajectory of the mental health field uh, from a psychoanalytic perspective. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the, the there's, um, I mean, in that piece, uh, she describes uh, a fourth uh, industrial revolution in, in mental health. And um, it's all of the sort of alienating adaptive practices, but, um, you know, now through, through different apps on your smartphone and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the natural trajectory of like uh, therapy in America. It's been about uh, short uh, very efficient sessions that, uh, you know, get you back to work. And, uh, you know, the shorter, the better, if you can take a pill for it, even better. And the insurance companies love it. Uh, and that whole model of therapy is extremely destructive. And um, again, I think critiqued uh, quite, quite well from a psychoanalytic perspective. Um, on the marriage of Marx and Freud, uh, the best gay marriage around, um, I, you know, I think it's like going strong. <laughs> I really think it's going strong. I, I don't, um, I, I don't, uh, y- you know, I mean, Marxism came under attack uh, from sort of like certain post-Marxist tendencies in a way that I think most people recognize is, uh, you know, a, a kind of caricature, right? That Marx was like Eurocentric or Marx was like class first or whatever. And um, I think most listeners of this podcast would recognize that uh, Marx and uh, Marxism have been, um, you know, if, if, they, if they fell out of favor in the neoliberal period, it's because uh, bad critiques were made of it. And I think something similar is the case with psychoanalysis, that like if there's a reason that it's fallen out of favor and this supposed marriage has fallen apart, um, it's that there were bad critiques made of psychoanalysis by those same forces that I was just mentioning. Um, you know, the, the psychoanalysis fell out of favor within the psychiatric establishment and, you know, Alex, you're right. Uh, it was it was the dominant form of psychiatry in the 50s. Like all the, the like the, the writers of the first two uh, DSMs, the psychiatric manual, they were all psychoanalysts. They were writing from a psychoanalytic mm-hmm. perspective. Um, but it just, it wasn't sustainable from uh, the perspective of the monetization of mental health. Um, and that's really the reason that psychoanalysis, I think, came under attack from all quarters. It, obviously, it was taken up in a really... Um, let's say like unproductive way in the humanities, like through like different postmodern lenses, uh, which I don't think did psychoanalysis any favors. Um, but it was really, you know, um, a, a turn in the field of mental health uh, that um, that put psychoanalysis in retreat. Um, so I guess you know I, I would say the um, the original project is still it still very convincing that uh, not that like these two offer. Um, um, symmetrical perspectives or anything like that that's a perfect marriage I would say and I think that everyone at damage would say that Marx is um, is the primary figure there um, that uh, you know you can you can be a perfectly good leftist and have uh, no uh, interest in psychoanalysis and even hate psychoanalysis uh, that's totally fine right um, but I do think that psychoanalysis does help you know again make sense of phenomena that, um, that Marx didn't uh, talk about. Um, again, like things having to do with what it means to feel like a subject of, of capitalism. Um, that uh, is, is, you know, like that's important as well because, um, you know, the, the way in which 
people adapt themselves to alienating imperatives, um, you know, it sort of keep this, keeps the system going. And um, as a theory of, of motivated irrationality, I think psychoanalysis offers uh, one of the best ways in which to make sense of, you know, how we maintain an interest in our own domination, despite the fact that uh, people very clearly um, hate this form of society. Yeah, so I, I've got I got a question on the culture industry, but actually just to to wind back a bit, the um, piece that you mentioned by Brianna last, which I thought was brilliant and a great description of the tailorization of mental health care, um, and it made me as you were kind of um, outlining it, it, it did make me think whether um, there's any real reason for optimism for the sort of future of the psychoanalytic project, because it seems like all of the market forces, the quantification, the task splitting, so that um, various tasks are done by less qualified um, people, if possible, within within mental health care to, to drive down prices that the insurance companies might have to pay. Does all of this put together mean that the sorts of relationships and long-term interactions which are required for a psychoanalytic sort of um, relationship are very difficult to um, to see, I, I guess, developing um, and to be advanced in the context of the current um, American healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, the prospects for the psychoanalytic project are about as bright as they are for the leftist project, I guess. Wow. Um, and for maybe some of the same so reasons. So it's, wonderful, it's, in, yeah. wonderful in the long run, but we've just got to keep fighting, and not tomorrow, but the day after that, it will all be fine. Um, yeah, I mean, let, let's hope in the long run. I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, psychoanalysis is like very simple. It's about uh, two people having a long conversation, and uh, in general, I think most people could say that's a healthy thing to do—to have long conversations with people who you get to know quite well. And, um, you know, therapy culture is accepted uh, podcasts included, of course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think most people would accept that, uh, you know, the, the existing therapy regime is about uh, taking people out of that context where they can develop relationships with people and talk about um, things that are close to their lives and hear different perspectives, taking them out of that context and, um, you know, essentially treating them as a, um, as a defective bot to be returned to the line. Um, and that's the imperative of the current mental health industry. Uh, and I think that as long as human beings are interested in, um, you know, basic conversation and relating to other people, there is still hope for psychoanalysis. Yeah. Um, and now I feel much less, much less hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> the lock, lockdown, the lockdown is definitely uh, cutting against that anyway. Yeah, very much so. Um, so actually, the, I guess the question that I had on the culture industry, maybe to kind of condense it a little bit and hopefully not to do it um, too too crudely, but um, does the, is there a danger of a kind of, I guess, psychoanalytic or, or I guess any critical analysis of the culture industry? I'm thinking maybe of Adorno as well, essentially being quite grumpy and saying that, the masses are all a bit kind of gullible and stupid and they're just enjoying their Marvel cinematic universe films well, rather than listening to, to modernist music. And um, yeah, that it's only the enlightened few who can, who can sort of see that this is a, a problem. Um, Adorno was certainly... Um was certainly prey to that kind of thinking. I think actually Horkheimer was more of that, um, more of that ilk. Like he, he, um, um, I'm forgetting what book it is. I think the, the Eclipse of Reason, he talked about, uh, you know, the necessity for like resistant individuals who haven't been subjugated by the culture industry and who had the proper education and their senses are still intact. Um, he, I mean, he had that kind of like elitist worldview that like, oh, it's, it's, it's us few critical thinkers who uh, can see things that the masses don't. I think that Adorno was prey to that sometimes, and he certainly had um, uh, a certain self-conception that was like in line with um, elitist sensibilities. Um, 
But I think theoretically, he thought that, um, you know, he didn't really occupy that perspective. Again, I think that um, he's, he was trying to describe through the culture industry uh, thesis, like things that he felt as well. And I don't think he was as much of like a prude as people sometimes say he is. I mean, when he moved to New York, like he was going out dancing and stuff. Um, he was involved with the culture industry. Like he didn't just observe it from afar. And um, if he describes the compulsions therein pretty well, it's because I think he felt them as well. I mean, despite the fact that he hated it um, and he uh, in many ways hated being in America, um, he also felt those things quite well. Uh, th I, I think there might be, sorry, just before Phil, I mean, there's a thing about the culture industry that maybe on one level, it has transformed us so profoundly that we don't really recognize what it is. Um, and consequently, discussions about it, and maybe listener, you're, you're hearing this and you're thinking, uh, maybe it's not such a big deal because what it, the culture industry is, is just these cultural commodities that we consume. And okay, you can partake or not, but it's not such a big deal in sort of transforming who you are or how you see the world. Um, so, I mean, how do you how do you see it? Would you restate the importance of, of a critique of the culture industry in actually um, leading to a maybe an anthropological change that we're that we're fundamentally changed in, in who we are as as subjects because of it? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but I was looking for a quote from Adorno that I wanted to read to address George's previous question. Um, and I think it nicely, uh, I mean, for me, as you know, someone who like imbibes all the culture, the, the products of the culture industry, uh, quite willingly and happily, like it gets to, um, you know, the phenomenon of like what it means to be a subject of the culture industry. Um, and this is in uh, one of the, uh, uh, this is an essay called The Culture Industry Reconsidered. Um, he writes, uh, people are not only, as the saying goes, falling for the swindle. If it guarantees them even the most fleeting gratification, they desire a deception which is nonetheless transparent to them. They force their eyes shut and voice approval in a kind of self-loathing for what is meted out to them, knowing fully the purpose for which it is manufactured. Without admitting it, they sense their lives would be completely intolerable as soon as they no longer clung to satisfactions which are none at all. Um, and, you know, I mean, reading something like that, I don't, I don't get the sense of someone who's like, you know, looking down from on high at the culture industry. I get the sense of someone who like could see the real mm -hmm. enjoyment therein, who could, who could understand that, um, you know, when people go out and watch like the Marvel movies and listen to the, the latest pop songs that like, they know that it's kind of trash, but they don't really care. Right. And that, that does describe the experience of the culture industry to me. Um, and never yeah nevertheless i have have the the mental picture of um adorno that meme of the people dancing at the party and he's just uh sitting <laughs> standing by the wall being like this is the culture industry it's it's good though no that's, I don't know that's, if that really that's you that's you projecting your own status yeah, at the party yeah. or, or the best version and of that anyway meme. they don't know i have covid <laughs> but yeah i mean anyway who the fuck goes to parties anymore jesus it's much um, like the uh the picture of bernie at the inauguration actually <laughs> yeah yeah that's, yeah. that's the irl oh. version yeah sorry i'm forgetting the question now though alex well i had a question um should we move on to that or yeah maybe i think what, what i was asking about whether we don't even perceive what the culture industry has, has done to us, I guess, um, might be best addressed in one of the last questions. But it was, an, but it was, an, I mean, I think it was answered by the Adorno quote, wasn't it? Because the point yeah. is that you're conscious, it's a limited satisfaction, but nonetheless, you, um, you, uh, you'd be worse off without it. Yeah. I mean, I'll so, just say one, one small thing about that as well. I mean, Adorno, um, did write about this concept that's not, um, you know, that he's not extremely well known for. Uh, one, one of his translators, uh, Bob Kulat Kenter, writes about it a lot. He, he described like a new anthropo anthropological type that was emerging from the culture industry. And, um, and, and this is, you know, I mean, it seems like very Adorno at first, like it's a, it's a sort of like degraded version of subjectivity that's lost its critical faculties and very willing to sort of just uh, go along with uh, whatever's like put in front of it. Um, and so he did, I mean, if, if, if we're talking about like, so, well, so what's the big deal about the culture industry? Um, 
Well, I mean, okay, so just from the, the perspective of the Frankfurt School, I think that they did think not only that um, it was something that was distracting, which they certainly think it was, but also that it was something that was um, reorganizing uh, subjectivity, that it was something that was, um, that was a, a tool of domesticating critical capacities and capacities for dissent. And, um, you know, I mean, I, you can take this in a kind of vulgar way that it's just sort of like, you know, making us sort of stare drooling in front of our screens. Um, but I think there's something to that, that, um, you know, that uh, the culture industry is very good at um, siphoning off uh, dissent and sort of uh, involving us in things that we know are not ultimately satisfying or not ultimately like productive or going to realize our, our, our political goals. Um, but which we do nonetheless, we just engage in them because without them, again, uh, what else would there be to do? On that note um, of the kind of the danger of kind of drooling um, before before uh, the products of the culture industry, there's something you said in your book, um, which I think is kind of really fascinating, where you made a point about technology and in your words, it attends to a psychic need before a material one. So very counterintuitive take on um, kind of uh, consumption goods, I suppose, technological consumption goods. Um, and specifically with the, um, with the example of the smartphone, the idea being that it um, provides two damaging outlets, uh, omnipotence and self-erasure. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what you meant by this idea of um, that technology, that the things, the technologies that we consume um, meet psychic needs before they meet material needs? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I was sort of running with uh, Herbert Marcuse's um, thoughts on technological rationality there and um, that, you know, uh, technological capacities provide um, some outlet for uh, like demands for omnipotent control, essentially like infantile demands for omnipotent control. Um, and I'm always I'm always surprised by how common this is, but there's a lot of like broadband ads, uh, like internet uh, company ads that feature someone like screaming, like just like yelling like a child about how their service isn't good enough, right? And so like yeah. this this like portrayal of like oh if you're disconnected for a second you're just gonna have like uh, you're gonna have like an infantile tantrum because uh, the thing by which you are omnipotently controlling the world is not working for the for you in the way that you want it is um, mm -hmm. want it to. Um, so that's the basic in intuition that um, you know that the internet uh, and you know our uh, access to it through our smartphones provides a kind of like omnipotent control. I mean, the, the world is sort of frictionless on the internet. Um, you can, uh, you know, create uh, your own self image, like you're not limited by your own like embodiment. Um, and so it's, podcast a, it's is a, discovered. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a quite unique space. Uh, it's a quite unique space and it, it provides um, outlets for uh, real psychic desires, but the way in which it um, twists and manipulates them is obviously cause for some concern. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like the, the thing with technology um, there also is that it, I'm trying to get a read of, of what the current disposition is, I think, on that, that effectively people are more skeptical now well, firstly, I think the, the thing to identify is that technology is identified purely with uh, information technology today. And, you know, I'm no accelerationist, but I might be an accelerationist if we were talking about trains um, or <laughs> modes of transport or, or other or other technologies, which we almost forget about as as technologies or which our imagination is relatively limited because there's been so little progress in those areas that we're that were, you know, um, yeah, that we forget. And, you know, there's marvelous advances in medical technology nowadays, you know, the vaccine probably being the, the most uh, recent example where we would say, yeah, full speed ahead. Um, but with informa information technology, it does seem to be um, at best distracting and at worst, um, at worst, uh, res severely restricting of our freedom. Um, so I, I, I guess, I don't know if I had a question here, I guess, um, but it does lead me at least personally to be a lot more skeptical of technology than I would have been a decade ago. 
basically. I, I, you know, and, and even the idea of, of rolling things back um, and dreaming with the, the complete destruction of social media, something that I thought was marvelous a decade ago, seems to me kind of the, not the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm forgetting where I read this. Um, I think it might have been so, like one review of um, Aaron Beninov's recent book on automation. Um, but, you know, I mean, it seems like the only uh, technological innovations that we've gotten uh, in the past couple of decades have been uh, embodied, uh, you know, in the smartphone. It's been like essentially digital uh, innovations and um, all the things that we were promised uh, in terms of, you know, better uh, infrastructure for actual living have uh, not actually come to pass. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on the question of like, um, uh, uh, you know, the digital technologies and um, the, the internet and social media and whatnot, um, I'm, I'm actually sort of returning to this topic recently because um, as I, I said before, it might not have been during the show, but uh, I'm, I'm working on a book on uh, drugs in the history of capitalism and each chapter kind of focuses on one drug. And there's a chapter devoted to social media. Um, and I'm, I'm in that chapter, I'm trying to make sense like of, uh, make sense of like in, in what sense we can speak of social media as something that's addictive. Um, I think that there's a standard story that you get from uh, the tech um, the, the tech defectors, the people who like, you know, worked for Facebook for years and now are uh, ashamed of what they've done. Um, the story is just that like the technology is just too good. It's just way too good. They were essentially sort of godlike creators who've like unleashed this monster. And um, it's, it's convincing in some ways, like I certainly like know, know the experience. Um, but, you know, in, in, in the chapter, I'm trying to figure out like in what ways, um, um, you know, social media is addictive, not for technological reasons, but for social and psychological ones. And um, I think that it's just, I mean, it's a remarkable tool of, it's a remar remarkable salve for late capitalist alienation. I mean, it connects us without really connecting us. Mm. Um, it makes things interesting that are not that interesting. Um, you know, it allows you to create your own self-image, you know, when you might be sort of ashamed of like who you actually are in real life. Um, it's a perfect salve for like the moment we exist in. And I think that that's, uh, you know, part of its real danger. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one thing which struck me in, in reading your book also was that, that I mean, this, this, this description that um, what, uh, you know, both kind of technology and then the culture industry, and I guess, you know, the internet, <laughs> the internet is the latest embodiment of this, is that it provides the sense of an outside without really being an outside, that it pre prevents, excuse me, presents some idea of, um, um, of risk, of adventure, of, of, of something, um, of real exploration, of even kind of looking laterally in your life, um, in, which is actually um, otherwise precluded from us. That, um, that I, and I think you, you quote Adorno in, in talking about um, living, uh, you'll have to find it for me. I've, I've written this down and now I can't find it, but living, living in a straight, something like living in a straight line or living, um, you, you can maybe fill it in for me. Um, yeah, living, living straight ahead. Living straight ahead, which I think is a great way, great way to put it. Um, maybe I don't know if you want to maybe elaborate on the, some of the psychological mechanisms that uh, that are at work there in in ma making us leading us to live straight ahead rather than maybe looking laterally. Yeah, I mean, just just on like the the like attractiveness of like the digital medium. I mean, it's of course very uncomfortable to be dealing to to deal with normal conversation a lot of the time like people say unexpected things that you don't necessarily know how to respond to um and uh you know uh that that normal uh, real life interactions are um not always how we want them to be that they're um that they seem um you know that they're um uncomfortable that it's that it can be hard sometimes and that's fine that's sort of part of what it is to be human um, and in the online space, you can, um, like all of those uh, little uh, inconveniences of life can go away. You can like craft the perfect message. You can post the right kind of picture. You can only engage with who you want to engage with. Uh, you don't need to listen to, um, you know, people who admonish you for certain perspectives. Uh, it's um, really 
like frictionless. I think um, uh, Matt Christman uses this phrase. It's, it's frictionless. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's lacking the the friction of uh, real life activity. Um, and in that sense, you know, you you are not called upon to uh, engage in ki any kind of like real critical activity uh, because there's just like no friction between um, you and your activities. You can just uh, uh, carry on without um, any real um, uh, pushback in the online world. M mute, block, or ignore. Um, not least because like a lot of that pushback can be psychologically difficult um, because people are assholes on the internet. We're all assholes to each other. So it's, yeah, um, it, I think that's like an, an, an additional um, sort of motive for, um, yeah, for, for actually seeking more frictionlessness. Um, I, I wanted to maybe just had like just to finish on something uh, the real doomer <laughs> the real doomer conclusion um, but it's something that you reference in your book as well which I mean you reference Marcuse as saying in his conclusion to I think it's one dimensional man that you know the key problem was how can individuals liberate themselves from themselves as well as their masters whereas now maybe the question is uh, where do we even see the need for this self liberation. Um, and I guess if you were to travel uh, from from if you were a person of the 1950s or 1960s even uh, to today, you might look around and go, oh, I guess people people like capitalism, don't they? <laughs> or at least on a superficial level, that just those elements of not just of political revolt, but also of cultural revolt um, seem to be not there. But of course, as soon as you dig a little bit deeper, you know, there's uh, drug addiction, uh, social media addiction, various other form pathologies, which suggest that things aren't all, all right. Um, but I guess that's, that's the question. I mean, do we even recognize that things could be otherwise? Um, and that maybe that's a concluding question. Yeah, I mean, to answer the question kind of obliquely, um, I was uh, prompted to, to sort of begin research on a book on drugs and the history of capitalism uh, from this class that I've, I've taught um, at, uh, at, at Arizona State University. And uh, it's a sort of sociology of drugs class. And I guess I'm always worried at the beginning of the class that there's going to be some students who are like, oh, cool drugs, you know, um, <laughs> but they're actually like not really like that. They, they don't. Uh, I mean, from, they, they don't uh, really ever talk about their recreational drug use, except in the case of psychedelics, uh, which are, you know, kind of special class. And they don't think of themselves as users of drugs, right? They just like, they, they come in thinking, uh, you know, viewing the topic uh, from the outside. But, um, you know, over the course of like, you know, the, the different like weeks in, in, in the class, you know, it's a, it's a discussion-based seminar. Uh, so it's mainly them talking. Um, they'll admit things like, oh, at the age of eight, I was put on this particular drug. And I was like, wow, that's, that's fairly, uh, mm. that's, that's amazing, you know? And I, I, I don't think that they totally, um, you know, process themselves as, as drug users because they're prescri prescription medications rather than uh, recreational drugs. And I think the degree to which American society is a drugged society today is pretty unprecedented, and um, you know uh, the you know everyone talks about you know uh, historically high rates of depression and anxiety, and I think post COVID, um, you know that stuff's going to really uh, rear its head. Um, I don't know if you all have heard this, but uh, MDMA and psilocybin are both in uh, phase three trials, and uh, they're likely to be prescription medications in twenty twenty one. Uh, so I, I think that like right. we're we're really on the verge of like a kind of like you know soma society like people sort of really just uh, taking their drugs to get along, and uh, that I think is where alienation lies uh, in the fact that um, it's 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 muted by uh, the uh, psychopharmacology by you know social media by all these different outlets that the culture industry uh, has to mute our sense of dissent. So it's going to be the culture industry. <laughs> on uh mdma and on on um mushrooms that's that i mean it i think it's quite a striking element of um american society or at least when alex and i were in california doing the calibunga series it was you know seeing um adverts for prescription um antidepressants on on tv while we picked up the the rental car it was you know it was very striking and maybe this is one of the ways in which america shows us the future of 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 our societies because it's um yeah i mean that's a 
I'm just quite quite staggered that you could, you'd be able to get prescription MDMA. I mean, what's what's that? What's it indicated for use for? Just um, feeling feeling low, because yeah, I mean, apparently it was developed by um, accidentally German soldiers needed to stay awake and they had something related to MDMA which kept them awake and they experienced a variety of side effects which. Um, of probably what many people use it for recreationally, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, the Germans were essentially taking methamphetamine um, and MDMA is like a kind of amphetamine. Um, it's generally thought of as in a different class because it doesn't have the same effects. Um, but there, I mean, there was like a sort of underground tendency in the 60s that was against the um, countercultural excess that was like, oh, these drugs should actually be used in much more limited quantities in order to, uh, you know, have things like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which speeds along the therapeutic process. And um, along with like the microdosing trend in Silicon Valley and whatnot, um, that's sort of what it's being recovered for. And um, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's quite scary but uh you know when you said um the culture industry on mdma it sounds pretty good actually <laughs> yeah uh i mean i think you know for all our listeners who aren't in the u.s i think we probably can count ourselves somewhat lucky that there's enough regulatory breaks uh against the kind of medicalization of of all social experience uh, in a way that i think in the u.s has been completely unleashed i mean that's yeah george said you know at the kind of commercialization, you know, that you find in adverts for prescription drugs is something that's, I think, shocking. I think we, I think someone mentioned in that Kalibunga series that I think it's only US and New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, who permit uh, advertising for, for pharmaceutical drugs, for, for uh, prescription drugs. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's remarkable. Um, so yeah, though these things might be a little bit retarded in other places that there, that there's certain breaks against uh, their full advance, I guess some of the tendencies are still there, even if they don't manifest in those specific forms of of, uh, of selling drugs. I mean, and I think, you know, you can look at the changing nature of drug use, I think in other places as well, where people seem to not be, the, the well, effectively not using drugs recreationally in the way that they used to. And of course you could say, well, that itself is a form of SOMA, a way of coping, of getting by, but there's a hedonistic abandon there that even that seems to be uh, being lost, which I think is is really, which is really troubling. Yeah, totally. I mean, not that, you know, like getting like, you know, like really messed up and, you know, the involving yourself in the hedonism is itself liberatory in any way, but its absence, I think, is troubling as well. The fact that yeah. people are using drugs not to, you know, just get high and have fun, but to, um, you know, become sparkling personalities at like office parties and whatnot. That's a, that's even more depressing. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we'll leave it on, on that depressing note. And we'll say, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to get fucked up, do it, do it for fun. Don't do it to cope. <laughs> I don't, that's maybe terrible advice. I don't know. Um, you'll do what you do. Well, Don't, uh, don't do it for your office party <laughs> on zoom. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, what's really depressing. Um, yeah, no, indeed. Um, and I think I, hopefully we are able to come out of this whole COVID situation uh, with uh, kind of social bonds, not, uh, too afraid. Um, so we'll leave that there. Uh, thank you patrons for listening. Uh, ben, thank you very much for, for being with us. This was, has been a lot of fun. Um, we should do it again. Uh, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.